Hello and welcome to part three of this course, The Dialectics of God. Uh, in this course, we're really delving into uh, the project that is called uh, Death of God Theology or Radical Theology. And it's also a way to begin to understand what dialectics means, uh, how dialectics function. And the way we're doing this course, as you know, is we're, we're really starting with uh, Generation One of this movement. Uh, there are precursors to it. The main uh, philosophical influence would be Hegel. Uh, but in the 1960s, uh, a group of theologians uh, hit the public stage. Uh, we're doing a really innovative type of theological thinking. And that's really where radical theology, ra radical theology takes off. Um, after that, it kind of died down and there was a resurgence of uh, more yeah, confessional uh, theology and more evangelical theology. But uh, there is currently a type of revival in, in radical theology, partly led by uh, the philosopher Slavio Žižek. Um, and my own work in paro-theology can be understood as a, a form of radical theology, uh, a, a theory and a practice that arises out of that tradition. So understanding that tradition hopefully will help you understand a little bit more about some of my influences uh, in my own work. So I'm very excited about this week because we're actually delving into really the main thinker in radical theology. Uh, the, the, the legend that is Thomas Altizer. And Altizer, as I said last in the last section, uh, in the last seminar, is a difficult thinker. Uh, he, he writes in these grandiose apocalyptic terms. He is a larger than life figure. He's a, he was a very charismatic man. Uh, he would have been at home in a Southern Baptist uh, church preaching from the pulpit. Um, he has this uh, incredible spirit about him and uh, you know he has he was he had a lot of mental health issues as well in his life um, and so when you read him you see his genius at work but you also see that prophetic uh, sermonizing dimension and his work can be difficult to follow uh, William Hamilton said about his work that you know it would drive some people in analytic philosophy mad uh, because he would make these grandiose claims but uh, the point is uh, that Altizer was a brilliant thinker and there is an incredibly coherent way of thinking that is in his work. And that's something we looked at last week or in the last seminar. So what I wanna do now is I wanna quickly just uh, go over some things we talked about in the last seminar. Then I want to give a bit of a context for the article that we're reading today, which is called America and the Future of Theology. Then I want to give a brief overview of the article uh, and then we're going to like uh, give a close reading. We're going to delve into it. So first of all, just from last week, uh, the main points are probably that uh, we looked at how various thinkers can be said to have been influenced by death of God theology if in some way they experience the loss of uh, meaning or their religious tradition or a questioning of their historical background. Uh, we showed that William Hamilton and I think Altizer as well, he wrote the preface together. They said that there's, I think there was around 10 different ways that you could understand that. One being that 
God doesn't exist, that we have moved beyond the idea of a transcendental realm. And at the other extreme, all of our language about the transcendental realm, the absolute, falls short. And so that we have to always die to that language. Remember that in a sense, it is already dead. Uh, and then there's all these other elements in between. But then we delved a little bit further and said to, to actually be called a radical theologian, uh, Hamilton uses three um, uh, elements that you kind of like have to tick off, right? They are the detective, the assassin, and the artist. And uh, the detective is the person who uh, takes seriously this experience of the death of God, cosmologically, historically, and existentially. They look at why this has happened in our history. They chart its development. Um, so they're a detective looking at who is it that killed this God. And then secondly, a radical theologian is someone who wants to be an assassin, who sees that this death of God is actually something that continually is occurring, that we have to not only accept it, not simply analyze it, but actually affirm it, actually be part of that death, that this canonic self-emptying experience, this death of God, God entering into nothingness, is an ongoing process uh, that the radical theologian jumps into. And then thirdly, the artist. And that is where the radical theologian, having fully entered into this experience of kenosis, this death of God, um, draws out some sort of affirmation from it. Some sort of new theology arises, a new way of being in the world emerges, uh, one that we would not be able to imagine uh, otherwise. Okay, so that's, that's what Hamilton talks about. And, and that, I think, is a good way to think about what a radical theologian is. And then we, we, took, we, we looked at what the death of God means. So this week we jump into this essay. Two very quick provisional points about the essay are that it is written to a German audience and it is really written to people who are intellectuals but not theologians. Uh, and that, that's interesting because um, there's two things that immediately strike, uh, well, struck me about the essay. The first is that um, uh, uh, Altizer understands that this German readership are probably going to be a bit sceptical of America, right? An American theologian, an American thinker. There is a certain European prejudice against America being a vulgarizing country, not having a connection with history, um, being very positivistic uh, in, its, in its thinking, etc., etc. And what Altizer does with that is he fully accepts it. Uh, in fact, he says it even more strongly. So maybe he's, he's writing to this audience that might have a slight um, skepticism towards America. And Altizer says, yeah, it, it is vulgar. It doesn't have a connection to history. Um, it is positivistic in nature. He, absolutely. So he goes further than them all. And then he says, and this is the wonderful thing about America. This opens America up to a possibility that might be close to Europe. Right? So that, that in and of itself is a good example of dialectics at work. Right? Uh, Tillich takes this negative view, America as being this ahistorical desert, right? and then he affirms it more strongly than the critics. 
and then through that that negation through that attack something positive arises so he kind of uh, he goes yeah the, the the problems that you see with america are exactly why america is so um uh, full of potential it's broken with the past it's it's looking towards the future. It's an eschatological culture that, that is open to uh, a revolution in thinking. It's open to new ideas. And then secondly, he does the same with theology. He's writing to you know, the intellectuals in Germany who would probably have very little time for theology, think that it's basically uh, a dead discipline that has not much to say. And again, what, what Altizer does as a theologian is he says the same thing, and yet he goes further. He says, absolutely, theology is dying, is dead, is, it should embrace silence, should be dissolved entirely. So he goes even further. And then, again, the dialectic move, and he says, and this is a theological project. And actually, this is what's going to, I'm so sorry. So sorry about that. Um, this is a dialectic project. And this is what is going to, or sorry, this is a theological project, the destruction of theology. And this will, um, uh, this will give birth to something different. This will be the, 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 the revolution and the resurrection of theology. So the very article itself has a, has a type of dialectic structure. Um, but let's now look at the article itself. Um, the article overall uh, has like a number of elements. The first is that we need to look to the future, that theology and the current uh, project of the intellectual, the theological intellectual, um, is to break with the past, is to look towards the future, um, is to embrace the world. So the, the article is all about fully entering into the world, fully entering into the um, experience of individuals, uh, this current historical epoch. And he uses the term existence, uh, existence with a Z at the end. Um, we'll probably come back to why he does that later on, but I'll just mention something about it now. This is a term that is taken from Karl uh, Jaspers, who's a German theologian, uh, sorry, a German philosopher. Uh, who is credited as being one of the uh, bringers of existentialism into Germany. So basically the two great existential philosophers are Heidegger and Jaspers. Uh, although uh, Heidegger uh, rejects the term um, and uh, can't be really seen as an existentialist, but has existential dimensions to, to his work. Uh, yeah, Jaspers uh, more fits the framework of an existential philosopher. And Jaspers uses the term existence to talk about an authentic form of life, um, a form of life in which the individual uh, embraces their destiny. They are aware of their surroundings. They embrace life. They don't flee from life. They don't free, flee from their responsibilities. They don't flee from their freedom. They embrace it. So Jaspers, or Jaspers, I don't know which way you pronounce it, um, says that the existence is our experience of affirming our life, of centering ourselves, of taking responsibility uh, for our fate. And that's contrasted with what he calls Dasein. 
uh, which is just normal being everyday life where we just get through and we uh, go and we drink or we hang out with friends or we do you know what's whatever it's just everyday life uh, Heidegger had a good term for that he called it the they and he, he said that we as human beings always have a temptation to give ourselves over to the they and the they um, is basically there's a great English expression which is whenever some parent says to their child uh, they wouldn't like you doing that or if someone says well people say right whenever someone says that who are these people who say uh, in a way it's everyone and it's no one or scientists think what does that mean some it's a way of going like well it's it's every scientist but it's also nobody it's like it's it's a way of saying there is a big other out there that doesn't like you acting in this way or thinking in this way and what happens for heidegger is that we are always tempted to think with the they to enter the herd to escape our individuality and he gets this really from kierkegaard Kierkegaard was always very critical of how we can be drawn into the crowd. Uh, you see this, it, that people will do things in a crowd that they will not do as an individual. You can get caught up in, in a type of hysteria with a crowd. Pe crowds can beat people to death when no individual within the crowd would ever think about doing that themselves. Right? So Kierkegaard was a very important thinker in warning us not to try to lose ourselves in the crowd. And then Heidegger takes this notion, he secularizes it, and again says that uh, one of the dangers of being human is that we want to think like everybody else thinks, right? So, and, and you know you're in the they when your opinions fit pretty much exactly with the opinions of your community say you're a progressive or a liberal or something and you find that all of your views fit with progressive and liberal ideas then in a sense you're in the they or if you're a conservative and all your views fit in with the standard conservative viewpoint you don't have any views that stand apart that are actually critical of your own community um, then that's pretty good evidence that again you're you're drawn into the they or if like on social media, you get caught up in condemning the person that everyone else is condemning, of thinking the way everybody's thinking. This is one of the reasons why Kierkegaard was very critical of the news uh, in his day, because he felt that what ultimately happens, or what would happen, is that the news would very gradually get people to all start thinking the same. And it's quite prophetic in a way, because when you see how things have uh, evolved or devolved to to today um, where like a lot of news articles people don't even read the articles you just see the headline on Twitter and that's enough to cause uh, pandemonium you know so uh, Heidegger calls it the they uh, Kierkegaard calls it the crowd uh, Jaspers calls it Dasein and these are contrasted with existence and in a way existence is something we cannot escape. We all have it. We, are, we all have authenticity. Subjectivity, to be a person, is to stand out from the crowd. It's to be able to analyze and to be able to think differently, and to be able to assess and be able to think about the future. So we can never fully get rid of it, but what we do is we try to flee it. 
That's why Jean-Paul Sartre talked about being condemned to freedom. And the idea is that we don't like our freedom. Most of the time we're terrified of it. And, and so in a sense, we're condemned to it. Um, we, we want to give up our independence, get other people to make our decisions, uh, go to a palm reader to tell us what we should do about something, uh, rather than be resolute and make a decision ourselves. So we're always fleeing this existence. But uh, we are at our best whenever we don't. And actually for Jasper, as he talks about this as being an experience of the eternal, that when you fully have those moments where you center yourself and you think for yourself and you act uh, for yourself, you are, basically eternity is breaking into the temporal and you experience this infinite depth. So in the moment, eternity erupts and you're deathless. So if you think of, we think of eternity as horizontal, like eternity just goes on forever and ever and ever, but this is eternity as vertical. It cuts through our horizontal timeline and for a moment you feel timeless. For a moment you experience this different mode of being. Um, I hope that kind of clarifies what existence means. So when, when Altizer is using this, um, in a way, I think it's a shorthand for him to say that the, the authentic experience of the age is the experience of the death of meaning, the uh, loss of God subjectively. So he's, he's saying that in everyday life, people are fleeing from that, they're ignoring it, they're covering it over. But when you look at the, the high point of the culture, those individuals, those artists who really feel the culmination of their time, who can look at it, who can assess it, who can critique it. Those individuals are expressing the existence of the generation. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what Altizer is trying to hit at here. So we have in the article this notion of uh, like a loss, a death of God and the experience of people that we ought to embrace. So he's going, theology should not look into the past, it should, it should look into the future and it should fully embrace this experience of the loss of God, which is in the authentic experience of the existing individual. Uh, it shouldn't be partial, and we'll look at that when we get deeper in, it shouldn't be partial, uh, it shouldn't run away from that experience, it should fully embrace it. And then the article goes on to say that uh, when theology fully embraces the profane world as a theological task, uh, it will uh, blossom into something new, something radical, what he calls universal Christianity, right? which has kind of always been there as an element of Christianity. Idea, you know, the idea that Christianity is for everyone, go to the corners of the earth and the idea that you know, Christ died for everyone. So there's always been these universal sparks, but he's saying that that universality will be seen um, in this new iteration of Christianity. And then he warns us of, uh, of what theology will look like if it fails to blossom into something affirmative, uh, and that is Gnosticism. So he says the temptation of theology is Gnosticism. And that temptation is a deep temptation 
in the moment that he's writing. He's saying, he's saying like, so he's not telling you what the new theology will look like. Uh, in a way, that's his entire vocation. Uh, that's what he gives his whole life to. And he's not going to say what it looks like because in this article, he claims that theology must go through a period of silence, a period of dissolution, of, not, of, dissolution, of not looking to the future, but rather dying. Uh, giving up its past, what he calls Christendom, right? Giving up all of its historical past. Uh, he, and he takes that as well, partly from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who at the end of his life said the same thing, that theology has to go quiet. It has to silence itself. Uh, it has to die. It has to give up its baggage. So Altizer isn't going to end this article by going, okay, and this is what it looks like after you've done that. But what he is going to do is he's going to say, I'll give you a couple of hints as to what it's not going to look like. And it's not going to look like a world denial. It's not going to look like an escape from the world. It has to be something affirmative. Um, I'll give one example of how that dialectics works and then we'll delve in and I'll read some quotes and we'll unpack the actual, the actual chapter. Um, to give an example of this, uh, I'm thinking of a good friend of mine, Mark, who's a great artist, very, very talented artist, uh, who uh, spends his days basically painting in the, uh, like in the studio that he constructed at the back of his house. And one of the things Mark did is in order to find his unique signature, his style, what he did is he spent years painting through every style that existed before. So he, from you know, the Renaissance paintings, uh, you know, Impressionist paintings, Expressionist, the whole works. And what he would do is he would spend time with an artistic moment, uh, say it's Cubism or something like that, and he would paint in that style until he felt that style in his bones, until he really understood it, not just from an academic perspective, but he really got it where he felt that he could create in that style. And what he did is as he painted through the various epochs in the history of art, uh, eventually he got to contemporary artists. Um, I think uh, you know, he was painting in the style of Lucian Freud for a while. And then from that, something of his own style began to emerge. And this is important because this is kind of what Altizer is saying dialectics is. Dialectics, is all about yeses and noes, right? And it's all about a no that's a yes and a yes that's a no. Um, whenever Altizer says that you have to fully embrace the world and then dialectically something will come out of that, it's not a no saying to the world, it is a, it is a yes saying, it's an affirmation. Um, so in the same way that Mark was affirming these artistic moments he was learning them he was feeling them he was really like in the heart of them and out of that affirmation dialectically came a different style a style that in many ways was a critique of what went before it or a, um, a kind of a radical break with what went before it but it was a break that came out of this profound affirmation and that's the difference between what Altizer's talking about in Gnosticism. And again, we'll come to it when we actually look at some quotes. But it's like, he's saying that this is not, you, you don't enter into this world, feel it, and then reject it. By entering into it and feeling it, 
you something new will erupt. There will be what Kierkegaard calls a repetition. You'll repeat something, but it will be different. Okay, so there you go. There's, there's the article in a nutshell. He's talking about we need to let go of the past of Christendom. We have to let go of that history. We have to fully embrace the world. We have to avoid the temptation of Gnosticism. And out of that will arise a type of uh, universal Christianity that has um, traction, that has something to say, that's something creative to contribute to the world. Now then, let's get, let's get to some uh, actual concrete readings. Um, yes, yeah, so he starts off by saying, observing that the waters of European theology are at present somewhat stagnant. Karl Barth recently said, that we need, what we need in Europe and America is not a renewal of an older form of theology, but a theology of freedom that looks ahead and strives forward. So the article starts off by saying, we can't look to the past, we need to look to the future. And this is why at various points he's talking about how America can be a real place of uh, creating this productive theology because it's a place that has cut itself off from the past that precisely created something new and that looks to the future. And so, so it's got this forward-looking dimension right from the start of the article. Um, he says, yeah, thus the American who is in a quest of a deeper form of existence must look to the future, not a future which is simply an extension of the present, but a future that will shatter all that we know as present. Hence, an anarchistic utopianism has always been a deeply ingrained component of the American character. And I love that because I see that as a, as a, as a uh, uh, transplant from Ireland to America. So I love that line. Hence, an anarchistic utopianism has always been a deeply ingrained component of the American character. Because when I came to America, I did notice that it doesn't feel temporal. It doesn't feel it's connected to the past. Back home, you have castles on the side of the road, right? You have buildings you're in regularly that are hundreds of years old. Um, it's, it's all around you. Uh, the past is present. Uh, the th things that are thousands of years old are, are just things that you walk past on a daily basis. So there is a sense in which you're connected to the past. But here, um, where I am in LA, it's, it's, you don't get that. You get this feeling of the contemporary, and you also get this feeling of the future, of a future direction. And so in many ways, actually, the main contribution that America has given to the theological world might be radical theology, and precisely because of this. So that's, that's how the article starts. Now then, where he goes from here, is he, he outlines some of the theological attempts to have this uh, forward-looking theology that is going to create something radically new, that is going to enter into the world and experience it, right? Because that's what he's told me. He says you have to look to the future by entering into the world. And this is important. This has always been a part of Christian theology, actually, to some extent, is taking history seriously. Um, you know, in a conservative sense, it's like revelation occurs within history and you know, the acts of God take place within historical reality. So at a more abstract level, that just means that, that truth is in the, the uh, evolution of history. 
And this is very much what Hegel brings to philosophy, is that truth isn't, shouldn't be understood as something that stands outside of history, but truth is what unfolds within historical development. So the, the Hegel really develops this idea in philosophy, this notion that the universal is uh, at work in, in uh, uh, human history as such and battles and the formation of countries and the, the, uh, the loss of civilizations that once you begin to understand uh, and begin to interpret those things you can begin to see how they speak of something through they unfold something um, so uh, Altizer is wanting to go okay this is happening and the big figures are Bart, Boltman and Tillich uh, probably the three main ones right um, and each of them are attempting to take seriously uh, the death of God in various ways. Um, so we'll, we'll start with Boltman and Tillich. What does he say about them? Okay, so for, for, for Altizer, Boltman and Tillich, just don't go far enough, right? They get this, they try to do something about it, they do some incredible things, but what he's saying is the problem is they aren't fully dialectic they're not dialectic enough right they embrace the world they try to understand the world they try to understand uh, how Christianity can um, arise out of that world and uh, connect with that world but it's it's it, it's half-hearted and so in terms of Boltman he says this um, yet few if any theologians confess that our time demands a radical transformation of faith. Rudolf Bultmann's demythologizing stops short of demythologizing the kerygma. Right, so first of all there, uh, Paul Tillich's uh, most famous um, contribution to the intellectual life is called demythologizing. Uh, now Bultmann was a, a great scholar, great biblical scholar, um, which people kind of forget, but in terms of theory, demythologizing was this process in which you try to strip away arcane views of the world, like arcane scientific cosmological views, um, in order to uh, let the text speak uh, in a in a dramatic way, kerygma being good news to 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 get the the good news, the salvatory message. So, for example, when you read that Jesus ascends on the third day, whatever, uh, Boltman would say, well, we have to demythologize that, right? In a three-tier universe, the idea of Christ ascending made sense. People would have imagined that Jesus, you know, literally flew up into heaven, heaven, which is, which is literally up there. But in a post-Copernican world, where we know there's no up or down, there's no heaven above us, right? You have to get rid of that. That doesn't make sense. But then you can get the true meaning of the story. The same with miracles or anything like that, is that these stories contain deep insights into what it means to be human. But what we have to do is we have to uh, demythologize them in order to find that message. Now, what... Uh, Bonhoeffer said uh, at the end of his life in the letters and papers from prison is the same as what Altizer is saying here which is the problem with Boltman is that he doesn't demythologize enough and 
That's an interesting critique because most of the critiques of Boltman are he demythologizes too much, right? He's, he's uh, taking away too much myth and that uh, he's been critiqued by numerous people for that. Um, with, within conservatism he is, but also in, in some philosophers have critiqued this. But Boltman and Altai are saying, no, that's not the problem. The problem is he hasn't gone far enough. He, he maintains certain words and phrases, like things like God being the ultimate one, right? He doesn't demythologize those. He doesn't demythologize the central tenets of Christianity, uh, only kind of things that don't really matter that much. And Altizer is saying that what Boltman needed to do and what people who follow Boltman need to do is they need to go all the way with this demythologizing. They need to demythologize everything, <laughs> fully enter into the imminent world um, in order for this next step to happen. Uh, I, Bonhoeffer says it very clearly. I, I don't have it in front of me. We talked about it in the Bonhoeffer course I did. But, um, you know, Bonhoeffer says that even concepts like God and incarnation and salvation, they need to be secularized. They need to be taken apart and re-understood. And we do, and he, and Bonhoeffer was saying the same as Altai. He said, I don't know what that's going to look like. I'm just saying that we need to do it. That if we're going to go halfway, we need to go all the way. We need to, just as Christ, you know, God entered fully into the world, these theological concepts have to be dissipated fully into the world. And uh, Bonhoeffer called this worldly Christianity. So that's why, that's the problem with Boltman. You know, great start, he's trying to do it, but he, he, uh, he pulls his punches. And then on the same page, 25, he says, and Paul Tillich's method of correlation demands a preservation of the form of the traditional Christian symbols. Uh, he actually, on the next page, I'll just pop to this for a second, because this will explain it a bit more. He says, Tillich, in his early writing, formulated the theological criterion of uh, contemporaneity with his thesis that a Christ who is not contemporary is not the true Christ. Uh, but the theological method of the mature Tillich, particularly in his second volume of Systematic Theology, is grounded in the traditional Christian principle that Christ is the answer to the angst of the human condition. Once granted that existence in our time is swallowed up uh, in a radically imminent mode of being, then the Christ who is the answer to our condition must be wholly imminent um, and therefore attached from the Jesus of history. Okay, so what, what's he saying? Right, well, it's one of Tillich's most important contributions to the intellectual life in, in terms of theology is correlationism. And correlationism uh, in theology means something different in philosophy, but in theology it means that you take absolutely seriously the condition of human beings within history and then you try to show how Christian symbols speak to that condition. So Tillich is attempting to take incredibly seriously, absolutely seriously, what can be called the profane world, the imminent world, the world in the aftermath uh, and in the midst of the death of God. And uh, Tillich, you see that in his book like The Courage to Be, uh, where he really takes seriously the subjective experience of human beings who feel anxiety, angst. Um, and Kierkegaard talks about that as well. So uh, uh, Tillich takes that incredibly seriously. But 
then Tillich takes the traditional symbols of Christianity and without really changing them up, shows how they can be an answer to that. Uh, and so whenever, whenever Altizer says in this essay that, let me see, um, you know, in the second volume of Systematic Theology, it's grounded in the traditional principle that Christ is the answer to the angst of the human condition. What he's saying there is, so Christ is not in the human condition. Christ is the answer to the human condition. Christ is not in the angst. Christ is the answer to the angst. Therefore, you still haven't fully, imminently entered into the world. There's still this transcendence that you're holding on to. So again, just like Bultmann, he's saying that Tillich didn't go far enough. That Tillich wasn't able to um, uh, fully uh, experience this canonic self-emptying of God into the world, into the profane, into the imminent, and therefore create an innovative theology of the future. Um, that's the problem there. And then Bart is the other example. For Altizer, Bart uh, does go fully into the dialectic um, embrace of what's going on in the world. Um, so early Bart does kind of like uh, basically say all religion is human construction. All, all Everything that the Christian church is is just made by human hands. So he fully kind of, in one sense, despiritualizes the, the experience of the church, fully, fully sees it as imminent, but then creates a little castle uh, and, and uh, like a type of uh, what uh, Boltman called a positivism of faith. So he just kind of basically goes, so if you want to be a Christian, just fully accept the Bible as right and then we'll kind of like start, go from there. Um, so he doesn't, so Bart doesn't enter into that world of the profane. He kind of like articulates it and then backs off from it. Uh, one, uh, one of the things that, um, yeah, then Altizer says is that this, this uh, de-secularization of the world, this de-transcendentalization of the world, right, where we're feeling um, cut adrift from any sort of transcendental meaning, it's not... Uh, an enemy of theology. It's not even what theology has to accept. It's actually part of what's happened. Theology is partly responsible for it. And, and this is a good thing. As we take the example of biblical scholarship, he says that, um, well, let's see if I can find it. Oh yeah, he says, fundamentally true biblical scholarship. This is on page 31. Fundamentally true biblical scholarship is demythologizing. The time has passed when we could live in the illusion that biblical scholarship is scientific and hence non-theological. In a theological sense, the very fact that it is scientific means that historical scholarship is Faustian. For to know scientifically means to dissolve the ground of faith and thus to will the death of God. So that's an example of where he's saying that when biblical scholarship really found its feet, which is really in the 19th century, um, it started to show that these concepts uh, of uh, uh, a kingdom of an earth and that kind of stuff all was historically based. It was connected to real historical events, like the book of Revelation isn't some like uh, prophecy about the future, it was talking about the time uh, that it was written in. Once you start to see that and you start to engage with that, then you uh, experience the death of God and 
in in the Bible. You start to um, uh, well, how could you say it? You know, God is no longer a, a, a hypothesis that you need to understand what's going on in the text. You just need history. You need uh, geography. You need all of these disciplines can help you understand and make sense of the meaning of the text. But you don't need God. Uh, in fact, um, that gets in the way, right? You're going to be a very bad biblical scholar if you're um, always bringing God in as a hypothesis rather than being a critical scientific and Scientific means in the broad German sense of the term is basically a systematic study, a cool systematic study of something. So literary theory is scientific. Um, so, and, so biblical scholarship is scientific insofar as it studies the text in a consistent, um, logical, reasonable, rational way. Um, so what Tillich is doing, right, in, sorry, not Tillich, Altizer is doing in the first few pages of this, of this essay is saying, Bart was right. We need a theology of the future that's not holding on to the past. And that theology of freedom is going to have to, and that theology of the future is going to have to fully feel the historical import of the moment that it's in. The existence, the existence of, the, of the epoch. It has to feel it, it has to know it, it has to dissolve into it. And then he says, and a variety of the greatest theologians of the 20th century have partly gone there. Boltman, Tillich, Bart. But in their various ways, they haven't gone far enough. Um, and then in the next part, which is really page 27, he starts to say that this means that theology has to reject Christendom which is the whole project of Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard, at the end of his life, kind of went away from writing philosophy and was critical of what he called Christendom, which is the historical church. And uh, Kierkegaard is really the, the founder of modern theology. And Altizer is saying that, yeah, we need to take seriously that critique. Um, but he then says, but don't think that there is a pure church outside of Christendom. Christendom is the name we give to the historical church. There is no pure church before Constantine or before Paul or before whatever. Like we have fantasized that there is some way of reconstructing the church that before it was perverted in some way by power, uh, by money, whatever. Uh, Altizer saying no, right from the beginning, Christianity has been influenced by Greek philosophy. And he's saying it's not a bad thing. It's one of the reasons why Christian theology has been so uh, insightful in many ways is its reliance on certain Greek philosophical concepts. So he says you, you can't unpick that. Christendom is Christianity uh, as a historical movement, as something that exists within the world. And so whenever you say you're going to reject Christendom, in a way you're saying we're going to reject the historical church in its form right from the beginning. Um, and uh, so yeah, this is what he's arguing here. Uh, he talks about how Greek philosophy has always been part of Christianity and you can't unpick those two. Um, let's see. Yeah, and then, and then he goes on in that same base talking about Christendom. He, said, he uses an example from Buddhism. Uh, Madhya, uh, how do you pronounce it? Madhya Maika, 
Matai and Mica. I, I did look it up the other day, completely forget, but uh, to see the pronunciation. But it's a form of Buddhism, really, a, a philosophical school of Buddhism, which negates all meaning. Nothing, uh, everything is in a sense a manifestation of nothing. There is just shifting sands. There is no center, uh, uh, no symbols that kind of hold meaning. Everything is a, is a shifting illusion of nothingness. And uh, uh, he's talking about that as a type of, in the Eastern tradition, a dialectic uh, no to all of the dogmatism of the past. It's a kind of rejection of all of the meanings that have been created. And uh, he uses that example of um, uh, you know, one, one way in which this dialectic can look. He says, never before has faith been called upon to negate all religious meaning, but it is the very radical nature of this negative movement which can prepare a way for the deepest epiphany of faith. So he's going like, yeah, we need something probably as radical as that, this utter negation of what went before. Um, okay, let's see then. From there we move on to... Uh, ah, okay, yeah. From, now he's established this, this rejection of Christendom, this entering fully into things. He now has to clarify what it doesn't look like. And he uses the example of resentment, which I think we talked about in the last seminar, but I'll just cover it very quickly. Uh, resentment is resentment uh, turned up to 11. It's, uh, it, we, all of us feel a bit of resentment from time to time about something or someone, but we can control it, we can acknowledge it. It's not a big part of our lives, just raises its ugly head occasionally. But resentment is like the spiritual condition of resentment. It's where you paint everything with resentment, where you say no to everything you see. You see the bad in everything. <clears throat> you, you can't affirm anything. Uh, for Nietzsche, this was uh, a condition of, of society. Is, is there are whole ranges of whole groups of people who they cannot see anything good. They can only see the bad in everything. Uh, and they're always looking for the bad in every person. Uh, Bonhoeffer said it beautifully when he said, it's the person who cannot uh, enjoy a home until they find a cobweb in the corner. Right? They're always looking for a person to say the wrong thing and then jump on them as if that's the whole of that person. They're always trying to ruin a person's career by something they said 20 years ago, whatever. Right? It's, this, it's this enjoyment of the destruction of everything. <laughs> um, that's resentment. And Altizer is saying that that is a type of dialectic, right? Because it, it ultimately lets go of something, it says no to something, but there's no aff uh, affirmative dimension to it. It's not a no that is actually a yes, that is actually something that is, that is blossoming and beautiful. Uh, where Hegel uses the example of a, a flower, where he says the the bud becomes the root, the, the, the tree, and the tree becomes the fruit. And so each dialectic transformation arises out of the past, right? It's not that, it's a pure no saying. So that's not dialectic at all. He says, that's not what we need. And that's always going to be a temptation. Um, a negation, he says, that rises out of uh, resentment is forbidden. Forbidden because it is merely destructive. Dialectical negation must never lose a positive ground, nor can true negation seek a partial 
or non-dialectical synthesis. It must spurn a twilight which is merely ideological. So this is a good example. So here's what you have to avoid. Uh, a negation that is merely destructive. Avoid that. Right? It must never lose a positive ground. If you have a dialectic no that is destruct purely destructive, doesn't bring anything joyous, affirmative out of it, it's to be, it's to be attacked, it's to be critiqued. Secondly, um, it, it cannot be partial. Right? It can't be this partial no. It can't be go, can't go halfway like Boltman or Tillich. Um, it can't be no, a non-dialectical synthesis that tries to find a middle path right between two things. Uh, it must spurn a twilight, you know, a twilight time, which is merely ideological. He says um, it, it has to go all the way. Uh, let's see. He says if we accept these strictures for theology, then it follows that contemporary theology must be alienated from the church, uh, that it can be neither uh, charismatic, dogmatic, or apologetic, right? So now he's saying, so if we go all the way here, this new theology will be happen really outside the church, even if it's by people who are in it, it'll be ultimately this, this radical critique. And uh, the three things he mentioned there are just three different ways that theology in, in his time and in our time, are, is trying to restructure itself, rejects it all. Um, like all thought, theology too must find its ground in that terrible night unveiled by the death of God. It must return to that mystical dark night in which the very presence of God has been removed. But now that night is all. No longer can theology find a haven in prayer or meditation. Right? Um, you know, he says, so whenever he says it must return, oh, sorry, he says, like all thought, theology must find its ground in the terrible night. I guess that's a way of saying, like, all great innovations enter into the darkness. They critique the past. They find the strangeness of the world that they're in. They fully experience the world. And then they experience the loss of that world and it opens them up to a new future. So someone like Luther is an example of an authentic individual living, um, uh, accepting their existence. Whenever he kneels the 95 Thesis to the wall, he's able to, he feels the past, he knows the, the church the history, he's part of it, he's a Catholic a monk, he feels it in his bones and his blood. He's able to stand apart from it He's able to see problems with it and then he makes his statement and creates something new. This is kind of this, this, this movement. Um, so all great thought kind of does that. It enters into this night of where everything begins to fall apart. And he references the dark night of the soul. This is a very uh, you know, common theme within mysticism. But this night is all encompassing. It must for a time, he says, dwell in darkness existing on this side of the resurrection. Consequently, the theologian must exist outside of the church. Uh, they can neither perform the word, celebrate the sacraments, nor rejoice in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because contemporary theology can become itself, only can become itself if it first exists in silence. Um, so this is him saying theology has to go through a period of silence. Um, 
and he thinks that that's what's happening partly so there's a there's bits here where he's talking about and he says i think you know there's a there's a certain sense in which theology is grinding to a halt um let me see i think someone like oh yeah he says it here um there is some evidence to suggest he says on page 32 there is some evidence to suggest that the possibility that american theology is now living in the present uh you know cut off from the past first of all there's very little theology in america today Dogmatic theology has virtually disappeared. Biblical scholarship is uh, largely archaeological and philological. Uh, church history barely maintains its existence as a discipline. And he says then, and, and the theology that does exist is uh, now opening itself up to the logician, the philosopher, the psychoanalyst, and the psychiatrist, the literary critic, and the social scientist. So he's saying like that, that something is happening, something is going on. Um, and uh, he says, thus we must not dismiss the possibility that the poverty of contemporary American theology is witness to theology's acceptance of its vocation of silence. It's, it's accepting, he's saying, the vocation of silence. Um, and even Bart uh, is seen as part of this because Bart broke free from uh, Christendom, critique Christendom but then went into neo-orthodoxy. So he went, he went a bit of the way, but not, not fully. Um, Bart shouldn't have run into neo-orthodox kind of castles. He should have fully entered into the Brophean. Um, okay, is there anything else I want to mention here? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the most important bit at the very end then is he's saying that, that resentment is only a small gesture within the real problem which is Gnosticism. He says that the issue with the Gnostic is they fully enter into the Brophean world, they fully experience the world and then they try to escape it. They fantasize some world beyond it. The Gnostic is the ultimate destroyer. There's no affirmation in it, it's just world negation. And he says that, that the theology of today and he's probably thinking about this time because he's writing like you know 60 years ago 70 years ago so he's talking about prophetically speaking to us he's saying that that um there will be all sorts of world denying activities secular and sacred um that that will try to escape the world um rather than transform the world whether that's through narcotics whether it's through escapism in terms of music and um, uh, religion, um, art, whatever it is, there's all sorts of ways we can escape being in the world and feeling ourselves in the world. And uh, this brings to mind Nietzsche. Nietzsche was like straight edge. He didn't drink, he didn't take drugs. He felt that they were as bad as Christianity. Uh, they were like Christianity, drugs and alcohol were three ways in which uh, we try to avoid confronting reality. Um, and uh, he really took that seriously and he said it was a very difficult vocation to feel the world he says that basically you will be made of glass and woe to you when you fall and he uses the example of a drunk person falling and they they fall in such a way that they don't get hurt because they're all floppy but whenever you uh, have existence whenever you you look at the world you're made of glass and when you trip you can smash right um, so there's a very Nietzschean dimension to this, and Altizer's very influenced by, by Nietzsche. He's saying that 
fully embracing the world is fully feeling the horror of the world the beauty of the world it's it's accepting how many advances we've had and how much horror there is it's feeling it all it's allowing yourself to be fully in that uh, Bonhoeffer calls it waiting with the world like the disciples waited with Christ in the garden of Gethsemane you know Christ says will you wait uh, you know will you I can't remember the exact words words but will you pray with me for an hour or will you watch over with me for an hour and the disciples fall asleep I think and he's like pissed off with them right it's that it's like Bonhoeffer uses that to say that's what we're being called to do to wait with the world to feel it to see it um, to not look away from it to not deny it um, and to not see Christ in as, as in a sense the external answer to this problem but somehow as within this uh, it's you know brings to mind even uh, is it uh, Ellie Wiesel's um, uh, story true story about being in the concentration camps and seeing a child being hung with three men and the three men die very quickly because of the weight of their bodies and everybody has to watch this uh, but the child uh, doesn't die quickly uh, because the weight of the child's body um, is, is less than the man uh, the child oscillates between life and death for a long time and everybody has to watch this and somebody says where is God where is God and uh, Wiesel says, a voice arose within me saying, where is God? There he is, hanging on the gallows. Right. That's a very, you know, Altizer I think would, would like that. Um, uh, I don't know if he's ever used that example, he would know that example. But uh, that's a way of saying Christ is not, or God is not the answer there, but God is in there, somehow dying with the child. There is a canonic self-emptying of God in the death of this child. And we can't look away from that. But that there's something salvatory about, about being there in that experience of fully embracing it. That is the vocation of theology for Altizer at this point. And I think now we're starting to look at what what it looks like to go beyond that um, maybe we're not but that's that's what all, that's what Altizer is saying here we have to go into that and at the very end he gets into a type of like preacherly mood because he says the very last line um, he says when faith is open to the most terrible darkness it will be receptive to the most redemptive light what can the Christian fear of darkness when he knows that Christ has conquered darkness, that God will be all in all? Uh, so, you know, he's, pre he's preaching the death of God here. He's, that's what he's doing. He's, he's saying, well, look, we've always had this symbolism of life comes after death. You have to die in order to find new life, that the light comes when you go into the deepest darkness. This has always been dialectic structure of, of the biblical text. And so we don't have to fear this. This is what we should do. So he's almost encouraging the reader to go, be part of this movement. Don't be afraid of it. Be part of, of seeing where it, where it goes next. So that's his challenge. Um, this is connected as well to the contemporary thinker Shizek. Because Shizek, um, like people like Ernst Bloch, says that atheism, in order to be atheist, has to pass through the Christian experience. It has to feel this and will this death of God. It has to sit within it. And if it doesn't do that, it can't be part of creating something new. So weirdly, atheism 
from Shizak's perspective, true atheism, not, not contemporary atheism, not new atheism, true atheism is a theological vocation. It is a sitting within this experience of the death of God. It is a willing of this death of God. It is seeing that as the outpouring of a theological trajectory and seeing it as um, the darkness before the light. All right, um, that's an hour of me talking. Um, I'll just uh, uh, check to see, I know it's, um, everything seems to be working still. So I'll just, uh, I'll just do a very brief summary and then we'll, we'll finish up. Um, the summary is, uh, this essay is, is, is Altizer at the start of his mature work the 1960s, he's about to release the, the uh, gospel of Christian atheism. He's gonna spend a, a lifetime working through what this looks like. But his call here is a theology of freedom, is a theology of the future. It is a theology that, um, that needs to uh, fully reject Christendom, say no to the past, embrace the present experience of the death of God as a theological vocation. And in doing that, um, it will uh, um, birth into something new. We, we bring demythologizing right to the end. We will have new understandings of the incarnation, of salvation, of the kingdom of God um, that will resonate in new ways with people and that is the, the vocation of theology.